Hello, my name is Lori Ellis, and I'm the head of Insights at Biospace. You are listening to Denatured. This episode is the second part of, and the final piece, of a discussion we recently had with three venture capitalists. As a reminder, they are Ansbert Gaddick, Managing Partner at MPM Capital, Mike Gogan, Managing Partner at Two Bear Capital, and Dr. Martin Gershon, Managing Partner and CIO at Endeavor Venture Fund. So it sounds like some of you have approaches that are more hands-on. And Ansbert, you had already said that your team comes in and helps evaluate. I want to know, all of you, do you think that that's going to be something that is going to be needed now throughout the future? Well, I feel it will continue, right? I mean, there may be, if there's a bull market, uh, which we have seen before once in a while, where kind of anything gets financed, uh, then you could say you don't need it. But that's not what we are sort of building our companies for, right? I think Mike made the point. Uh, if the markets are great, that's wonderful. But we really build companies that are sustainable uh, under any circumstances. And uh, the other point I would make that, I mean, right now we are all focused on when the markets will improve and hopefully that will happen later in 24. But let's assume the markets approve later in 24. It will only be a time until we have another bear market, right? So maybe it will take three years, four years, five years, who knows? But another bear market will follow. So even if uh, we have a bull market, we assume that that won't last for long. And even in a bull market, we build companies that are ready for the next bear market. Yeah, I think the point about the team, you know, it's just absolutely critical, particularly in this environment. But I completely agree with Mike and Hansbert that you have to look at things holistically in different cycles. Building a house requires a proper foundation and building a company requires a good leader. So one of the things that we at Endeavor feel strongly about is developing leadership skills. And we have a dedicated leadership program. So internally, there's a strong focus on team building, execution, productivity, creativity, innovation. But externally, there's also a strong focus on leadership skills, to be able to bring that vision to an industry leader and partner and collaborator who has deep pockets, who can stay for the long term, who knows how to incorporate that innovation into a commercial pipeline. And one of the problems that I see in being a chair of these different conferences and as a speaker is that industry really wants to work with amazing new companies, but often the CEO entrepreneur they have expectations that are not in sync with large business. The valuations that they're requiring, the speed in which that innovation is thought to be able to be incorporated into the large industry player and partner often results historically in large biopharma taking part in an acquisition or in a partnership with an early stage company only for it to fall off a cliff in two years and to get buried. And so we think one of the important things for this long-term period of slow growth that we see ahead for the next decade is for leadership to understand that it is a relationship building process that in fact is the moat 
that allows innovation to be incorporated into a commercial partnership. And that this process requires patience, understanding, persistence, adaptability, and resilience. And so we try to promote all of those for long-term sustainable growth. I was just going to add, you know, because we touched on a couple of really interesting threads here in Martin's comments. One was, Ansbury, I think you, you first put it, is it just made me have this increasing realization. A lot of these sort of deep observations of having done, I don't know, what, 70 plus boards, I think, uh, from early stage companies between in my 27 years, again, biased towards tech and now more life sciences. A lot of these sort of deep insights or observations on the tech side seem to apply pretty well on the bio side. One of them that Ansper touched on is sort of a truism in tech where venture-backed companies, more companies fail, not because they failed to build what they said they were going to build, uh, they built the wrong thing. They wasn't exactly on target. They, they spent a lot of money. They just built a big complicated piece of software, or hardware, or whatever. And it wasn't exactly what the market wanted, right? And they, they thought, well, Ansbert, you made the point on the therapeutic side, I think, is just, you know, this brilliant founder that has some innovation, new way to, you know, edit circular RNA or whatever, picking the right endpoint. What, what, what am I going to do with this? You know, where am I going? That's critical. That's an oftentimes failure mode. Related to that, Martin, you were touching on, and Laura, you your first question when I think you started this thread on, um, you know, is this going to require more hands-on, you said at the beginning. Well, here's an observation I've had over in tech, and it might be true in therapeutics as well, which is if you try to think in tech about what is the fundamental advantage that a startup has, a couple of brilliant folks, they have some deep techie idea. Is it that they have truly a better idea than all the brilliant people and all the big companies have? Probably not. Because, you know, in those big companies, plenty of really smart people probably have ideas. And I would argue maybe the same as in therapeutics. It might be a little different in therapeutics. You might literally have a, a science, you know, breakthrough. But let's just say you, you, know, you have a brilliant idea. There might be a chance that in one of the big biopharmas, there's some uh, research folks have stumbled on that idea. But what's the difference? The difference is those bigger companies, it's inefficient because they have, you know, bureaucracy things to get approved. Hey, that competes with this program. Let's de-emphasize that. Let's say in a tech company, it's competes with another product, whatever. So it's inefficiency, which translates to say the core potential, potential advantage that a teeny startup has is efficiency. What I mean by that is, is a laser focused on the right endpoint, picking the right goal. You have to get that right. Then a laser focused on that. So what that translates to is our job, so early stage venture capitalists, is to be very vigilant for where is their inefficiency. And here's something I'd claim is inefficient, organic learning on the fly. You can do something for 30 years, have tons of battle scars, then you know it pretty well. Well, in a startup, if you're expecting that entrepreneur to learn a whole bunch of things on the fly, that's inefficient. So instead, what I always try to do is say, okay, what is it that we're investing in? What is the core innovation that these founders bring to the table? Well, they are excellent at X, right? But then to assume that they're going to be excellent at a whole bunch of other things that they've never done before, that's inefficient. So instead, our job is to say, okay, now how do we surround that? We surround that person with the people who have been there, done that, who have the battle scars, they've had the 30 years of organic battle scar learning, that's efficient, right? So striking that right balance is really important. And the, the failure modes you have to be vigilant of, I know on the tech side, probably on the therapeutic side, is sort of the same thing. I would imagine that, you know, on your, your experience in therapeutics investing, you would, the flag would go up 
if you have a core scientist you in, you invested behind because they let's say discovered a new target or did something you know on the science side that that is differentiated but then they hire because it's the founder ceo they hire somebody for to run clinical programs that never done it before they're various roles they've never done it before because then you have to tell them wait that's inefficient they might get there they might be brilliant someday that person might be a super experienced head of clinical development they're not yet and therefore that organic learning battle scars making mistakes and correcting that's great if they work in a big company we can't afford it in a small company so i don't know if this makes any sense but the whole picking the right destination then having almost like a laser focus on what is the most efficient path and efficiency includes having people who don't have to learn on the fly um, is is another way it even translates to capital efficiency because it's inefficiency oftentimes translates to more time more money to get to the goal you just made an interesting comment mike when you said uh, building the wrong thing and i thought you uh, you really meant it uh, to some degree for tech companies but i think it's also critical for the top companies that we are building uh, which are really product or therapeutics companies and here, what I would point out, most of the technologies that we see take, let's say, three years to get into the clinic, and then it takes, let's say, two or three years in the clinic to uh, really get close to an approval. So when uh, these companies are tasked to select the indications, they really have to project for their uh, product profile uh, how the market will, be looked, will look like, let's say, five, six, seven years from now. And that's really, uh, really hard for, for people who are not really on the development side aware of what's going on in the industry. So what helps us here is that we also have a public fund. We know what the early pipeline uh, looks like in public companies and, and obviously private. So we try to project what is really competitive five, six, seven years down the road, assuming that some of the other pipeline products will be successful as well. And that's uh, another area where I think the startup teams that come more from the uh, platform technology side uh, can use some help. I have to say that that, you know, for us, it's spot on the channel that we go down, which is, and we take a little bit of a different tack, but the same exact goal. So instead of investing in the public markets to be able to capture that knowledge and innovation, we go directly to the industry partners and we say to them directly, what's your problem? What are your pain points? What are you looking to solve? And then we use the Venture Studio as a source to be able to customize that technology. And the only way that we see that we can do that and bring value to these large enterprises is if we do have these leaders who can adapt and pivot and be resilient and grow, not monocular in the use of their technology. So it's great to hear how we're looking at, as we started this conversation with risk mitigation, this really is about controlling risk, being efficient, as Mike was saying, you know, being targeted, as Ansbert was saying, and using the different tools that we have, whether it's going to public markets or Mike's incredible experience on the tech side, or my focus on building relationships within industry, these are all risk mitigation parameters that go towards the same ultimate goal. Successful investment really has a specific definition. And part of that definition is looking at the exit, looking at where these investments are going. We really take that 
extremely seriously from the get-go. And so one of the things that I hear is that we're all looking at the long-term exit strategy. Part of it is, Ansbert was saying, where can we feed this into the public markets? Mike was saying, where can I learn from experience about these incredible deals that he's done? And we look at the private sector forming these partnerships and deep collaborations on a project by project level as a way for us to not necessarily sell our companies to these large industry leaders, but to understand that they will be looking perhaps towards the intermediary companies like in Silico Medicine, where we actually want to sell to these one to $5 billion unicorns. We think that those are the companies that will make fast decisions, bring our technology in-house, allow our CEO entrepreneurs to grow within their company faster. And then the large industry leaders who are strategic partners will be the acquirers of the unicorns. So that's our 10-year plan, to be able to layer in this food chain to de-risk. Yeah, I think that's a really good comment, uh, Martin, particularly in respect to sort of uh, large corporate partners, meaning in our case, pharmaceutical companies, right? So we basically in every project uh, early on, we talk to multiple of the, the large corporations and get their feedback. Having said that, I think one has to be a little cautious because large companies don't always know what they want five years down the road. And uh, that's, I think, where we as DVCs also sometimes can add sort of a little bit of a spark, right? Or, or ideas to basically project, to hear them out today and to project where they may be in three or five years. It's, it's funny, there was an expression, and I think it was attributed to the um, founder of Sequoia. I'm not sure if he actually said this, but there's kind of a, a just a very brief question that you think about, which is who cares when a startup was, was pitching? And what, that, what was meant by that, obviously, that those two words sound a little rude, but here's what, what you're thinking about that is, can you convince yourself that when this, let's say, product, technical product, it goes to sell to enterprise, that they jump out of their seat? Oh, my gosh, you just saw yourself in the most important, my number one problem. They care, right? They really care. But it also was a comment on the, on the ecosystem you're building into when you're, let's say, a tech company. And I think what I'm hearing, the same applies on the therapeutic side. I know it does, which is when you start to arrive, you know, you developed um, your product, you've proven that you have something of great value, who's going to care? And my philosophy, what you want uh, in the ideal case is you want to make sure you have thought through that, hey, these very giant ecosystem players are going to care a lot, meaning interested potentially in potentially an acquisition, partnership, whatever. But you also, in my opinion, you also want to make sure you don't have to say yes. You have a strong enough value proposition. Maybe it's a harder road and so on, but it's logical and theoretically possible to sort of keep going because guess what? I you know, ended up doing a lot of acquisitions of tech companies. That's when you get the best price. You don't get the best price if they sense, but buyers are smart. When they know you're running hundred miles an hour towards a brick wall and the brick wall is them and, and you're just hoping and praying, hey, please, you know, please buy us. And they take a look and go, boy, they really have no other option. You know, they're running out of money or they're, they're sort of depending on us buying, well, you know, they might still buy you, but the price sure won't be the same. So I just think it's, it's interesting. We're talking about this. I really resonate with Martin when we got to know each other, that he has a heavy focus on that as day one, you know, before you invest, you think that through. And, and it sounds like so you guys have, have lots of experience of doing that, of, ver of checking that as part of your diligence. Who's going to care? You know, who cares before you even invest? 
No, I was just uh, saying absolutely. I, I think that's one of the reasons that this conversation is so dynamic. You know, we're really all very aligned. We come at it from with different backgrounds and different skill sets, but we're very aligned in terms of the vision that we have. And it's great to pull all this together. So then I have another question, and it's about alternative funding. It's speaking to those who cares. Um, some of these, um, I would say family offices, they care a lot. Um, and so approaching some of these organizations or these private investors, it's different approaching a VC. So one, how do you see the differences are, I would say? But also number two, when you see a company that has come to you and they've had alternative funding, what are their similar red flags versus, okay, this is this is a company I want to work with? I mean, one comment I would make from the perspective of the sort of startup that's being funded by family offices, or let's say angels, one fundamentally difference uh, with the type of venture funds that we present here is that family offices don't necessarily think about funding a company through multiple rounds and in the long term. They often think about it as like a one-time investment. That investment is not necessarily large enough to get a company to a major milestone. And then the company in many cases is sort of on their own uh, to find additional capital. And I mean, it's very difficult to do a later stage round if the existing investors don't take a significant portion of the round or even in, in IPOs, people want to see often the existing investors to take 50% of the IPO. That gets very hard when your investor base is uh, family offices. We certainly look at companies that got uh, started by family offices, but in general terms, my recommendation to entrepreneurs is to have uh, really one of the established VCs involved who has deeper pockets potentially and who is also really more dedicated to support the company in the long term. I was just going to say that this year, Endeavor and Techstars have partnered formally. So we have boots on the ground in the New York office with several of the Endeavor employees. And part of that process is to be able to facilitate funding. And one of the core things that is necessary for that process to be sustainable and to be successful is to, to find the right funding partners. Now, for us, it's critical that there is a sense of aligned vision between the funding sources. So the first question I would ask really in terms of the alternative funding is what is the mission and vision, as Ansbert was saying, both in time course and in terms of intent, for that money to be effective, it has to be followed on by other rounds. And so for us, and I tried to bring this to the Techstars community, a sense never to be in a crisis mindset, never to just accept the money just because the money is on the table. You can have a sense of urgency, that's fine. It makes you work harder and faster and more efficient. But understanding the long-term as Ansbert was saying, and as Mike has implied, means that you need to bring partners to the table that share your long-term vision. One of the things that we think is important is the ability to have deep pockets and to make a commitment to commercializing a product. There is certainly a trial and error roadmap in any of the startups. 
the ability to weather that storm means that you are working with a partner who has a sustainable long-term commitment that's aligned with yours. Some of the family offices, as Ansbert was saying, are happy to come in and some of the angel groups are happy to come in for the early investment. But their ability to actually provide support on an operational basis, which we think is a game changer, really doesn't exist. In a macroeconomic environment like we're in now, and that we think we're going to be in for an extended period of time, weathering the storm for us means operational support, in addition to commitment to multiple rounds, as Ansbert was saying. So for us, the family office, depending on the size and the location, has a different mission or, or vision than an institutional or a corporate VC would. Right. One more take, it's kind of a different take on this, but I'm glad you brought up this topic. So I think it's useful to see uh, almost uh, looking at it from the other end. A firm like Sequoia Capital, I assume maybe at NBM, you know, if you have a large institutional base of limited partners, and, and maybe if you've been around for a while and you have layers of funds, um, I know that's what we had at Sequoia, growth funds and layers and layers or, or very large funds, then you won't have this one uh, angle of looking at things that I'm experiencing now, which is the first few funds, we went with family offices and we targeted large family offices and are targeting large family offices that are interested in the areas that we're in. So here's a different way of looking at it, because I agree complete with the comments of if a non-typical source of financing is your early investor, it doesn't quite have the same long-term positive impact as if a founder in the early rounds picked a, a very you know highly respected firm lead lead investor firm that gives that extra validation and uh, can give the guidance operational sort and so on. But here's a here's the different way of looking at things. For example, our fund, our first fund was two hundred fifty million dollars. Current funders uh, that were, that were uh, in the process in process with is three hundred fifty million dollars. Not huge compared to some of the others. So the model we have is, look, our bread and butter is that early investment, that Series A investment and so on. That's where you know, we focus on the economics, the ownership and so on. For later rounds, we explicitly have an LP base, family office LP base, that express a lot of interest in the areas we're in. So for those later rounds, in terms of just added capital, because that's how you pose the question, you know, get just financing. So I'm not focused on first round now and who who looks like the lead, but I'm saying just for amplifying the the capital, uh, available capital, uh, we found it very useful. But so what we will do is first put the fund hat on and say, okay, for the fund economics, you know, here's what makes sense. And maybe it's not a huge follow on because the economics, we already have the ownership we need and maybe the dilution isn't bad and so on. So optimize the performance of the fund might imply one check size. But then we'll say, hey, the founder is happy if we invest, you know, 15 more million dollars or 20 more million dollars. And then you open it up for LPs. And oftentimes you have ones who have expressed a passion in a therapeutic area or something saying, yeah, we, we would love to invest. A little, little bit different way of looking at it. Now, here's what it doesn't do. That extra capital, it's extra capital. That's wonderful. Companies need extra capital. It doesn't move the needle in terms of extra validation. So, you know, if if and when you have the alternative that, hey, this is a good opportunity for, let's say, the Series B to bring in firm XYZ that also has a great reputation and will help with the credibility and so on, you'd probably choose that door. But if it's pure, you know, hey, we could use an extra $10 million, $15 million, uh, we, we found it to be very useful. Yeah, no, that, that certainly makes a lot of sense. I mean, if we talk about uh, 
family offices of or angel investors as a source of funding in addition to VC, we should probably also touch base on the large corporations, particularly pharma companies being a source of funding. And there, from our perspective, if it's purely about uh, the financing, pharma companies are not necessarily the best partners. They, I think, uh, clearly top VC firms and crossover investors and so on come first. On the other hand, in, in some cases, they can be really helpful in validation and then also uh, giving feedback. I would like to use just one example. I mentioned earlier our circular RNA company owner, where the goal is to replace CAR T therapy, uh, which is incredibly expensive and difficult and manufacturing issues and whatnot, with a simple RNA injection to turn it into an in vivo CAR. And there, uh, we approached early on, we approached the four largest uh, pharmaceutical companies that have cell therapy products and uh, offered them to be part of the journey of replacing their products, the much uh, more user-friendly therapy. And all four companies actually made uh, quite rapid decisions to be part of that journey. And that's incredibly useful because we get this regular feedback from the current industry leaders on what it would take for them to believe that their product is being replaced and that they may want to switch, etc. So pharmaceutical companies, I think, can be, in, in some cases, can be incredibly helpful. And I think uh, that's something that we should always uh, keep in mind and assess whether there's a good fit or not. I completely agree, Ansbert. And we have a very strong focus on partnering with corporate VCs who play in that space. A lot of what we do, as I mentioned earlier, is about AI, machine learning, deep learning, and the digital healthcare landscape and how that crosses over into drug development, drug discovery, electronic healthcare records, on and on. And one of the leaders within the pharmaceutical or biopharma space that has now pivoted from being a pharmaceutical-only company to a digital health company is Sanofi. And so one of the things that we look at is this liquidity channel that does open up with corporate venture partnership. Sanofi, for example, has moved the needle in terms of opening up partnerships with unusual partners, Orange, Capgemini. These are very interesting new collaborations that Sanofi has as part of a new accelerator program that they've invested $1.2 billion in. We think that this is a harbinger of what we're gonna see across biopharma. More and more money is gonna be put into collaborative deals with unusual collaboration partners. And we wanna be part of that demand liquidity channel. And we see corporate venture increasingly important in the digital healthcare space and we would also add that there's already $100 billion that's been put into play by Google, Amazon, Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft across the digital healthcare platform. And so we see that high liquidity corridor is one that we want to be part of. No, I just was realizing there was a observation inside, uh, I guess, ahead in the compare and contrast between the experiences in tech and, and getting into therapeutics in the past you know, four or five years. And it speaks to this validation credibility kind of question. In tech, if I started, if we funded a 
early stage, I don't know, cybersecurity company or, or something, some software, you know, oftentimes by heck, even after the seed, sometimes validation comes in the form of revenue traction. Hey, look, they're selling to this company. Look at the revenue ramping. It went from 3 million to 10 million to 15. Folks looking at that company, let's say outside investors or whoever, you're getting the evidence they're onto something from the market. And, you know, as you folks know, for many more years than I've realized, is that it's not quite like that in therapeutics. You know, you're just going to take a long time. Maybe the ultimate validation, of course, is you get FDA approval. You, you work, the drug works, right? But in the meantime, in the earlier stages, it seems, you know, very true that validation in the form of, okay, who's involved? This is this very credible firm. They've invested. Look at that other credible firm. They've invested. Look at that biopharma VC. Look at the two biopharma VCs. They've also invested. That translates to sort of credibility and validation, not ultimate validation. Still don't know if it works, but it builds this sort of transit of trust that, okay, I, I think they're on to something. I've just realized how it's a lot more important, it feels, in therapeutics in those early stages than it did in tech. Again, sometimes tech, it, you know, the results speak for themselves. And you know, I don't care what VCs are and look at that company. It's growing straight up in revenue and look at those margins and all that other stuff. You don't get that at therapeutics. So I think thinking through, okay, how will we get that validation? It could be a world-class scientific advisory board. It could be an affiliation with you know, world-class research labs. It just, I just realized it's, it's a lot more important in, in therapeutics than it was in tech. Considering the economic climate, are you seeing more rolling closes and closes that are reopening? And I know previously, obviously I think the answer is going to be yes, but previously, how did you view them versus how you view them now? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point, and I would distinguish between making a first investment and uh, and getting an existing portfolio company uh, funded. So for first investment, I'm not a huge fan of rolling closings. I like to see people committed before we get into it, As, and and I think that's really critical right now because you never know whether there will be a second closing or not. Uh, with an existing portfolio company. I would say for many companies right now, if there is if there are additional investors that are interested, I think it's an entire possibility to basically say, okay, we open the last round. We had a closing six months ago, but uh, you can still come into that and we make it uh, a little larger. I think that's uh, that's a wise thing to do, particularly if it's a quality investor. But I wouldn't I wouldn't use it as a strategy. Yeah, no, I, I agree that it's somewhat of a natural reality. I've seen this apply, by the way, across tech and, and therapeutics and life science investing. And it's a function of oftentimes not just, you know, fewer interested investors and investors sort of retracting, but also a function of the valuations coming down. Because if you did a if you did a round, let's say at a certain valuation with anticipation under certain market under the, the market conditions at that time that okay if we continue to execute it this six milestone you know we have reasonable probability of that next round we have to raise is going to be at x and all of a sudden that dramatically changes so you close this last round some number of months in you realize the market change and you say wait a minute you know we're gonna we can achieve a heck of a lot more it's gonna be probably a lot harder to you know uh, get that significant step up we have an interested investor why don't we just sort of add to the last round, you know, to, to, to continue to, to extend runway. And that, that happens reasonably often, again, as a reaction almost to, you know, reality changing. I think it's a great question. It's just that there's a lot of variables there. It really depends on the, you know, environment around that close. As Asbert was saying, 
if it's an early stage investment, it, it, it differs emotionally and psychologically for the rest of the investors. I think if it's a later stage, it's also different if it's a known investor or if it's a new investor. What I would say is maybe just to back out and take a you know, 30,000 foot perspective on the question, you know, why is it a rule in close? So it's very important for us to be able, as I think both Ansberg and Mike were, were saying earlier, to approach every partnership, every financing round, every strategic collaboration from a position of strength, not necessarily pounding your chest and, and being in a silo in a closed perspective, but from a position of authentic strength. And so that means when you build the platform in the house that you bring partners in early that do have the ability to close multiple rounds. Now, if it's an incremental value in terms of bringing uh, you know, some extra money into later stage rounds, as Mike was saying, sure, that, that's not really a negative in terms of the mindset. But what I do see is I see early stage companies, you know, in the series A category who have boxed themselves in because they're running out of money and they've got three months left. And so then they're trying to close and they're trying to create an environment which I don't believe in, which is the FOMO mentality. For me as an investor, if a company puts pressure on me and tries to create the air of FOMO, I'm walking away because that's just a red flag for me. And so it really depends on how that rolling close is tenored, is what I would argue. We want authentic innovation with strong teams that have a comfort level to be able to weather the storm. We don't want strategic misalignment with this crisis mentality, we've got three months of runway left, we have to raise money, and therefore we're gonna extend out. On the other hand, if it's a large round and there's a significant amount of money from a family office and they need a little bit more time, that's a very different tone. Actually, I, I really like it, Martin, that you talk about FOMO because certainly FOMO, I, I would say right now doesn't work if somebody says, well, there's uh, only one week left and this is filling up so quickly, I think a good answer is, okay, then call me in two weeks and, uh, and we'll have another discussion then. The, the other thing in that aspect, which really doesn't work or shouldn't work with professional investors, when people as part of creating FOMO tell you that the technology is such a huge breakthrough, that it's so confidential that they can't really share all the data. And that's basically for us a reason to simply just walk away right there. Because uh, the vast majority of those companies in, in sort of retrospect, they sort of have absolutely nothing, right? And uh, a few years later, you, you don't see them anymore. I have to tell you folks from, you know, 20 years of um, ups and downs in, in Silicon Valley tech investing, you know, my partners and I had, had very similar rear view mirror looking assessment. We said, why is it that every time there was a, oh my gosh, this we have to all jump in a plane and dive and catch and, you know, don't have time to do real diligence, but this, we're going to miss out on this, the FOMO. Every time that kicked in, we then patterned on ourselves the back. We won, we, we beat all our top tier competitors and we're in. Those didn't turn out to be great investments usually. So we kind of had a, a rule from then on. Anytime that 
condition arises, you know, watch out. Uh, I think the only exception now these days would be, uh, you know, again, everything all depends on the details. Uh, there could be a circumstance these days, let's say where, let's say financing is almost complete and it's very credible folks who are investing, let's say top tier investors and two biopharma VCs and so on. And hey, they have, let's say a small piece left or something that maybe fits with your fund spec. You know, it's more logical than in that scenario. Hey, that's pretty attractive. You know, there's a lot of folks involved. I could see why that window probably won't stay out open too long. Sort of different kind of FOMO. You know, you, you do want to probably be pretty efficient in how you look at that one because you know very logically for very good sound investment reasons, that's an attractive piece maybe to take and therefore you better be reasonably efficient in looking at that. So there are exceptions, but in general, you have FOMO especially when it's used as, it seems to be used as kind of a tool. That's, that's, a, that's a flag. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I was, to be fair, thinking with FOMO more about sort of a hype, right? Rather than I, objectively describing that uh, there is one slot left in the syndicate and the syndicate looks great and whatnot, okay? Uh, do you have any final thoughts um, as far as JPM? What do you expect to see? Or are you all pretty much, you have your ideas of what is going to happen and how you're going to proceed in the future? I, I one following comment that, that answers your question, but also is um, somewhat related to the thread we were just on. There's different ways you can look at what you could maybe consider a, a broken financing or a broken financing sequence. You hear about a, a therapeutic company, let's say that's doing a down round, right? So that depends on what's going on in the macro environment. If everything's up and to the right, you're in this very companies are doing well, financing is easy. And suddenly, you know, a company seemingly is stumbling very badly on financing that you have a different interpretation of that, or at least you go in with a different lens than, Hey, the whole market just crashed. Everybody's having bad financing. Everybody is now, you know, probably facing down rounds. That could be a great opportunity potentially. So the degree of taint, I guess, for a company that has some bump, and they're financing either difficulty closing around or doing a down round. You know, it's very context dependent. It's it's uh again when you know everybody's doing well and there's a taint, you look at that differently than than if uh, everybody's getting hammered and there's a taint. Well, is it really a taint? Let's dig in and figure out is there anything particular in the company that went wrong. Um, I'm, I'm also very interested and curious, and you know, obviously we do this uh, most. Yeah, seasoned investors do this when you do look at uh, the financing history of a company that that you're taking a, a look at, and you do really want to understand what didn't go as expected and why. So if if you know we've seen a few that have come around for financing that you know had done some round a while back, and again this one's independent of the context. So this is let's say not a function of market going down, but let's say several biopharma VCs were in the early round. Now it's a couple of years later. And they're not interested anymore. Well, obviously that's some kind of flag. And you look in, and is there a is there a reassuring explanation for that 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 checks out or or not? And some I'll give you an example of let's say a reassuring explanation. Maybe it was uh, this obviously has happened several times. A biopharma that was super into neuro decides to completely get out of neuro, and let's say, and they did an early investment in years ago in a neuro startup, and now they're a little checked out. Okay, that can make sense. Some sense you validate. The program's gone exactly as planned, hit all the right milestones, but that that biopharma big name is not interested anymore. It's a fact to consider, but it's also necessarily not a, not necessarily a deal killer. But you could also end up with a different conclusion. So I guess my point is that going into JPM, you 
terms of all the companies there with tin cup in hand looking for investors, it'll be case by case, but I would expect to see quite a number that have unusual blips in their financing history. Yeah, I mean, at JP Morgan, we don't expect to see any sort of mind-boggling advances that we don't know about yet. So there will probably be a, a lot of incremental progress by many companies. The majority of companies will be out there and really be hungry for capital. So it's certainly a good time for investors who have uh, cash. But I don't expect JP Morgan to be sort of uh, the start of a huge immediate turnaround. I think it will be it will take more time, hopefully over the course of this year, for the environment to change. Yeah, from my perspective, I think that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty and confusion on the investor landscape. And I'll speak not necessarily to the therapeutic sector, which really has you know, the platform of science to fall back on. But I'll speak to the AI sector, which is closer at home to most of our investments. The investors that we work with are very uncertain about valuation. They're very uncertain about putting money to work with companies that don't have the data to support their claims. They're very uncertain about companies that don't have proven teams that can execute. They're very uncertain about companies that don't have potential strong strategic partners that can lead down a roadmap towards commercial viability. I think that there's going to be some surprises that are not going to be so positive for early stage CEOs who don't bring a sense of humility to the negotiating table. I think that there is going to be some disappointment on the early stage funding side, even though there is a lot of capital, a lot of dry powder, unless the CEO founders bring strong data and results from work that they're doing, I think there's going to be a paucity of capital being deployed over the next several quarters. So what I would say is that there is going to be a lot of conversation, a lot of information transfer, as there usually is. But the activity in terms of actually deploying capital is going to be rather sparse. And I think that this speaks to what do early stage companies need to do to change that mindset? What do they need to do, as Mike was saying, to bring that wow factor to the table? What do they need to do, as Ansbert was saying, to look towards some real data set that proves the commercial validity of what they're talking about. And so if we look at some of the subsectors like drug discovery and AI, there's a tremendous amount of science to support really amazing opportunities. But look at the number of companies that actually have done something. It's a very few case studies that can say, we've used AI machine learning technology to drive a more rapid progression through the regulatory environment. And again, I'll go back you know, to Silicon Medicine that has now put a drug through the IND process in 30 months using their combination of AI machine learning and robotics. So that is a data set that investors can bank on and that can be templated out. 
And so unless early stage companies who are in these different subsectors, whether it's drug discovery, drug development, whether it's mental health, whatever the case is, I think it's important to understand that investors are still quite risk off. And I don't expect that attitude to change for quite a long time. I expect very much by the end of 2024, there to be far fewer companies, frankly, in AI at the seed and series A stages. Well, that concludes our discussion and this episode. I'd like to thank Ansbert, Martin, and Mike for participating in the conversation.